Hello, good evening, good day. Welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show, episode 122. Today we discuss science, technology, physics, astrophysics, all of that good stuff. I hope you're all doing very well and let me see who all is there with us. I can see a lot of people have already joined the live stream. I can see Deepak, Navnur, Divyang, Kuhu, Prashant, Tejas, Samarth, uh, Virat, Darshan, Vinayak, Kidar, Manu, Alpha, A, Sayan Kumar, Dhruv, Priyanshi, Purobi, Challenge Accepted, Crazy Brain, Durga, The Akwan, Adarsh, Chiching, Shashank, Swapnil, Math Nerd Teaches Physics, Abhairana, Raghav, Johnny, Asmenor, Laksha Sharma, Akhil, Dimal, Karan, Andrei, Komal, uh, Sikha, Guy Fox, Darshan Patil, Ame, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you. I hope you're doing fantastically well, just the way I am. All right, all right, all right. Uh, let us get into the questions. What do we have for today? A whole bunch of questions. Let's get into question number one. Question number one is by multiple people. Multiple people have asked me this, so I've taken just two questions to represent what people have asked. Lots of people have asked me about this. So, Abhimanyu says, recently it was recorded that the Earth's rotation was faster and the Earth completed 24 hours, 1.59 milliseconds in, in that much less time. If this continues and the Earth's rotation time gets accelerated significantly, what will be the effects on us or on the solar system? Swapnil says, is it true that the Earth is spinning faster than ever by the day and it's making our days shorter? Okay, okay. So the, recently it's come in the news that apparently uh, in 2022, uh, uh, a few days have been recorded that have been uh, quite uh, comparatively shorter than days uh, that have been recorded in the past and one of the days record that was recorded was the shortest uh, day ever and it it uh, it was 1.59 milliseconds shorter than the average uh, uh, time it takes for the earth to complete one rotation so the earth on average takes 24 hours to complete one rotation we know that so that uh, works out to 86400 seconds i think and out of these 86,400 seconds, there was 1.59 milliseconds less in the time it took for the Earth to complete one rotation. So what does it mean? Well, so let's take let's take a bigger picture approach. Yes, uh, in the past, the Earth used to rotate much faster. About one and a half million years, one and one and a half billion with a B billion years before present, the rotation time of the Earth was less than 19 hours. In the past, it was likely even shorter. So if you look at the large-scale uh, picture, it's apparent, it's clear that the Earth's rotation is slowing down, right? So imagine you're you're somebody who, who trades on the stock market. If you look at the stock market graphs of uh, various shares over a 10-year period, you see a very clear trend. And you see trends uh, for, uh, for companies that have existed for a long time. But if you look at the share share prices hour by hour you're gonna see very, very what seems to be random fluctuations so if you see it in the larger bigger picture in, the, in that context the uh, the uh, trends or patterns become apparent and what you see on short time scales is not necessarily something that will, that will contribute to the long-term picture 
but it is indeed true that this has happened so what why has this happened is is it something that we should be concerned about uh, no <laughs> we don't need to be concerned about it uh, what if if this trend continues for the short for the short uh, foreseeable future then maybe we will have to uh, readjust the way we measure time i mean we would have to perhaps introduce a leap second in order to make up for the shortfall of uh, all the shorter days and all that so that could be a headache for programmers for systems analysts systems uh, people who maintain systems you know and things like that that could be, certainly be a headache for them but for us life goes on it doesn't make any difference over a over the past 1.5 or 2 billion years the earth's rotation has been slowing down so what are the 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 factors that contribute to this the major factor that contributes to the slowing down of the earth's rotation is the uh, tidal effects caused by the moon so the earth has a satellite the moon yes uh, imagine this red pomegranate is the earth and this yellow lemon is the moon so the moon goes around the earth and it it tugs on the on the earth right it has a gravitational pull on the earth and this effect this has the effect of slowly over a very long period of time slowing down the rotation period of the earth so that is the large scale thing and also we know that the moon uh, causes tides on the earth it deforms the earth's crust crust it bulges the earth's crust is not entirely spherical it is oblong it's like squash it's like a squashed uh, circle kind of yeah there is a bulge along the equatorial line uh, so the earth gets deformed by the gravity of the moon it's a very small imp almost imperceptible change but that's what something that happens uh, the gravity of the moon also affects the oceans the the oceans slosh around the planet is more than 70% water so this water sloshes around that also affects the rotation of the earth the atmosphere itself is a fluid it also sloshes around in a way that also affects the rotation of the earth inside the earth we have a molten interior we have magma enormous an enormous pool of magma yeah spherical and with a with a, a solid core at the center most likely yes so this magma that also is a fluid it's a very viscous thick and very hot fluid that also sloshes around that also has currents it circulates it, it's what generates the uh, earth's magnetic field so the earth is an extremely complex a uh, system there are billions maybe trillions of parameters that you have to take into account in order to understand why things happen the way they do right so uh, so that's the situation that is what we have that's the planet we are living in that's what we have lived on in over the past 2 uh, billion 2 million years us as a human species yes uh, so this is not a cause for concern it's not going to suddenly uh, in a few years shorten the shorten the day this is a very small change over a large period of time the uh, the day is going to get longer actually so in the future as the day gets longer as the moon recedes from the earth solar eclipses will end you will have partial solar eclipses but the total solar eclipse that we experience today is not going to happen in the distant future uh, so that's the kind of thing that's uh, that's in store for us in the very distant future the thing about us is that uh, human life is is very brief it's uh, the human life is, is ephemeral from a geological standpoint from that perspective it's it's an eye blink of time so we think that 100 years is a big deal that's nothing 
in the in the in the larger picture so that's why we we are worried about milliseconds and microseconds which don't really make any any big difference in the large in the larger scheme of things right so that's what's happening and why is has the earth been rotating slightly faster in the in the past uh, in, in in recent times we don't quite know why it why it's so like i said there are lots and lots of factors that go into this most likely there is there is it's because of some something to do with the tides so the way the tides have been sloshing around on the planet somehow that seems to have made the planet temporarily rotate just a little bit faster 1.5 or so milliseconds faster than average but over a long period of time it's going to actually get slower so this is something that has happened this is something we observe maybe we need to uh, in our systems in our computer systems in our timekeeping systems we need to account for this change maybe throw in a leap second if required so that could be a headache for programmers for systems uh, for people who maintain systems and all that but otherwise it's not a big deal it's not an issue this is just part of nature that's how nature goes all right so this is a phenomenon you see everywhere not just on the earth every single planet that has atmosphere that has an internal uh, magma pool magma layer etc all these planets even moons their their period of rotation changes it varies or if they have multiple moons it, the, the moons could affect that if there's a single moon then that even then there's a there is this phenomenon that happens so that is what's going on it is not something that uh, is going to make much of a difference to life on earth and uh, yeah so that's where we are let's take question 2 mayuk says researchers at yale university have been successful in restoring cellular and organ functions in dead pigs is this a major advancement can it revolutionize medicine in a way although peta has criticized it so i i don't know what peta has said or not said i am not concerned with that um, <laughs> uh, let's talk about this this interesting piece of news so yes i uh, did see this news recently so what happened is that in the past i think in 2019 what they had done is that they took pigs they uh, removed the brains which obviously uh, necessitates killing the pigs they removed the brains and uh, uh, kept the brains well outside the pig body which means that the brain is starved of oxygen right for an hour or maybe four hours or something and then they ran some fluid through the brain some kind of fluid that they've designed which is mixed with the blood of the pigs and they were able to in some way revive uh, revive some of the electrical activity in those disembodied pig brains so there is something that they had done in 2019 so now this year what they have done is that they have taken entire pigs without removing the brains and uh, they took they acquired these pigs from some life livestock company they monitored the pigs for a few days maybe 3 days or so you know to see that they are stable their vital signs are fine and all then the pigs were sedated anesthetized you know put to sleep but still alive then cardiac arrest was induced by administering an electrical shock to the pig hearts which results in the pig's death yeah so the pigs would die then the pigs were uh, left alone the dead pigs once the heart stopped were left alone for about an hour or so and then this special solution that this the researchers have developed that special solution was run through the pigs bodies mixed with the pigs blood and even after an hour had elapsed once the pig the pigs died and then this solution was administered what they saw was that there was some revival 
of activity cellular cellular activity and uh, activity i think in the pig hearts in in the kidneys i believe and possibly liver also some sort of activity resumed cellular activity so what happens when an organism dies is that as soon as an organism dies which is typically taken as when the heart stops functioning so when there is cardiac arrest the final cardiac arrest the heart stops functioning what happens is that the blood stops flowing in that organism in that animal's body when the blood stops flowing the cellular tissues all the organs are immediately starved of oxygen we breathe in that process is what oxygenates the blood the oxygen uh, is mixed into the blood via the lungs and it is pumped through the body by the heart that's what happens so once an organism dies once an animal dies the organs and the tissues and the cells are very rapidly in a matter of minutes starved of oxygen this is essentially cellular death and as soon as the normal functioning of the organs and the cells ends it is it is terminated what happens is that there are enzymes within the cells that start digesting the cellular walls of the cells which essentially is the process of decomposition so decomposition starts very rapidly within minutes of an organism dying that is what we know that is what uh, we know through biology through through research and yet even after an hour had elapsed after the, after the pigs their heart stopped beating they were able to revive some sort of cellular function in the cells in the tissues of the, of the pigs and even in organs like the heart i believe and even the kidneys possibly the liver i don't remember exactly what it was so that's what they were able to achieve uh they did not detect any electrical activity in the brains which could possibly be because of two reasons first of all the solution they had uh in uh, they had injected into the pigs bodies which revived the pigs to some extent that solution was at a colder at a lower temperature than than what the pigs blood would be so maybe that lower temperature ensured that the uh, or the brain did not show any electrical activity and maybe there was some anesthetic also in that solution which could have suppressed uh, any activity that would otherwise have happened in in the brains of those pigs so maybe in the future they could uh, tweak the parameters keep the uh, maybe uh, remove the anesthetic component from the fluid and maybe elevate the fluid to the average normal pig blood temperature and maybe that could possibly even demonstrate some activity electrical activity in, in the brains right so in this experiment they were able to see heightened cellular activity in organic activity which kind of and and when certain um, and they also observed the involuntary twitching of the pig's necks and various other muscles uh, when this happened when, when they injected the solution so this does uh this is indeed a kind you could you could consider this to be a landmark experiment that even one hour after cellular after cardiac arrest the pigs were revived to some extent uh, the, the brains were not revived but maybe in the future they would be they may be able to uh, revive some activity in the brains also so this brings into question that this raises questions about what is the exact definition of death uh, there are multiple definitions from the medical perspective of death the standard definition is cardiac arrest when the heart stops beating that is when uh, the animal or the or, or or a person is 
that is recorded as the time of death when the heart finally stops beating but uh, we know that in certain cases people who go into comas their heart stops beating they can be revived after 10 minutes even after 20 minutes that 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 has happened multiple times especially when a person let's say drowns in in very cold water even 20 minutes after dry, drowning because the water is so cold it it stops decomposition keeps the organs and and the brain etc reasonably intact and even after 20 minutes or so it's happened multiple times that the person could be revived and the person went back to life as if and, and they were able to resume normal life afterwards uh so cardiac arrest is one definition of death that is typically recorded as the time of death the other definition is that the the uh the cessation of of brain activity all electrical activity in the brain so a person could be alive the body could be functioning the heart may, may be beating but there is zero brain activity so that is brain death right a, a person who's brain dead or in a vegetative state so there are multiple definitions of what death actually is yeah so when a person is brain dead you are allowed to donate their organs the family members immediate family are allowed to go ahead and donate the organs because the person's brain no longer exists there is no consciousness it's just a vegetative vegetative state now this experiment raises questions about what exactly death is even after one hour of cardiac arrest they were able to revive some function in the organs in the future they may who knows in the future they may be able to revive much more of organ function possibly even brain function which would then raise significant ethical issues etc about what brain about what death actually is i mean is it that we are uh, we are uh, we are certifying somebody dead dead prematurely is that the norm that we have been following yeah so so it it's still something that needs to be researched it's still something some a lot of research needs to be done about this um but yes it raises interesting questions it raises somewhat troubling questions about what the what death actually is uh so yes more research needs to be done in this will be the research will be done because it's the it's the what what people call the holy grail right coming back from the from death so if that sort of thing can could be done it could revolutionize medicine and people would possibly never ever die <laughs> if you take it to the ultimate conclusion so that's what's happening that's where we are that is the experiment uh, and uh, it's still a work in progress it's not a final result it's just maybe one of the initial steps in a long journey yeah so that is what this experiment is about and uh, they are going to continue the research in and and take it forward sudeshna says what's the difference between a cheetah and a leopard because although cheetah has been extinct from india a lot of people tend to confuse between the two moreover which one of the two is more dangerous than the other do you think that while doing science everything mentioned in the fact must be taken literally with the literal meaning only uh, let me take the cheetah versus leopard question i'm not sure what the other question is right so what's the difference between a cheetah and a leopard well uh leopards i think are much more powerful and if you look at the face of a cheetah and a leopard they are both cats yes of course the cheetahs have this uh, signature marking on the face that it's like tears black tears uh let me just put that on the screen so that you you, you can see the difference between a cheetah and a leopard all right let's uh google cheetah 
what does a cheetah look like? So let's see the cheetah's face, cheetah face. So there you have the face of a cheetah. As you can see, there are these uh, the signature markings on the face that look like uh, flowing tears, but it's black. These are black markings. Here's another one. So all cheetahs have this black marking. And as you can see, cheetahs have these slender and long bodies. They are the fastest animals on the planet. Uh, they are quite delicate, actually, cheetahs. And uh, cheetah versus human. Let's see the scale, cheetah and human. So as you can see, uh, this is the size comparison between a cheetah and a human being. This is... Uh, yeah, that's what it looks like. So it's a it's a medium-sized cat. It's much larger than our, our standard house cats or domestic cats. It's much larger. But uh, compared to other cats, the cheetahs have slender bodies and, and are somewhat delicate. What does a leopard look like? And and cheetahs cannot roar. They don't have the, they are not able to produce a roaring sound. Cheetahs sound like house cats. The meow, meow, meow. That's what they do. Leopards can roar. And, and uh, they are much more strongly built. They don't have those markings on their face. They've got spots. Leopards have spots. Uh, yeah, this is a comparison between a cheetah and a leopard. And leopards are much more dangerous, in my opinion, than cheetahs. Cheetahs also are, are obviously, they are wild cats. They are large cats. They are dangerous. But leopards are way more powerful, physically stronger than cheetahs. And the stockier, the, the build is different, as you can see. So leopard versus human. Let's see the uh, size difference. Um, okay, these are very unfortunate images, but uh, leopard, humans. Okay, so this is the size difference. This looks like a snow leopard, which is one of the varieties of leopard that we have in India, in northern India. Um, so leopards look like they are somewhat smaller than cheetahs, but they are way more powerful than cheetahs. Okay, let me not show such images here. That's uh, kind of... Alright, let's go back to the leopard. So, that's the difference. Leopards can roar. Cheetahs cannot roar. Leopards, their face doesn't have those tear, tear markings. Cheetahs, they do have it. Right? And leopards are somewhat smaller, but they are way more powerful than cheetahs. Way more physically stronger than cheetahs. And of course, the Indian cheetah is extinct, but we are reintroducing the cheetah into India. Uh, we are acquiring cheetahs from South Africa as well as Namibia. Uh, so that is what is the most recent developments. So I believe the cheetahs are slightly shorter and stockier than leopards. Sorry, I believe leopards are slightly smaller in size than cheetahs. Cheetahs have a longer body, but cheetahs are more delicately built. They are built for speed, not for strength and power. Leopards are stronger. They can, they can take a deer by its neck, clamp it in their jaws, and lift the deer, which may actually be larger than the leopard. They can lift it all the way up to a tree. That's the kind of incredible, immense physical strength that the leopards have. Cheetahs are not, that, not quite that strong. Leopards are very hard to domesticate and tame. Uh, you can't domesticate any of these large cats, but you could kind of tame some of them. Cheetahs are almost like house cats. If you raise a cheetah from the time it's a kitten, it's going to be just like a house cat. It's not going to be that dangerous. Leopards are a whole different story. You will not see any YouTube videos of people having a leopard as a pet. But you may see humans having cheetahs as, pet, uh, as pets or caracals or other wild cats. Cats. So uh, that is the overall difference between cheetahs and leopards. 
cheetahs used to be abundantly available in india you had cheetahs everywhere they were almost like 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 cats here yeah? uh, the turkic uh, emperor uh what, what was his name jahangir i think he i believe he had 5000 pet cheetahs in a menagerie or whatever so that's how abundant cheetahs were in india uh, a couple of about 3 4 centuries ago uh, they were decimated by the british and that's what happened now we are reintroducing them leopards we still have them in india leopards uh, yeah so which one is more dangerous definitely the leopard the leopard is much more dangerous uh, yeah so that is the answer to this question okay this the question is why do different sizes of black holes exist and what do you mean by different sizes of infinity <laughs> yes 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 uh, okay let's first talk about black holes well stars come in different sizes planets come in different sizes galaxies come in different sizes similarly black holes come in different sizes a black hole may be born from stellar collapse from a star that is like let's say 20 20 times the mass of the sun yeah but if it is in a dense neighborhood where there are lots of clouds of gas and other stuff it may then swallow all that gas and grow larger over time larger 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 yeah if you have a black hole that's at the center of a supermassive black if you have a black hole that's at the center of a galaxy most galaxies have supermassive black holes at the center in some cases this these black holes are active black holes that are actively swallowing more mass clouds of gas and dust and stuff those black holes will grow over time so that's why you have black holes of different sizes different masses some stars that collapse into black holes do so at the at the end of a supernova explosion some stars simply collapse overnight into black holes one day is there the next day it's all dark what happened where did the star go it winked out and became a black hole so there are different processes in uh, through which black holes are formed black holes could even have formed in the very early universe the primordial universe those are the hypothetical primordial black holes which may be very small we have never observed any but the it's certainly allowed by physics yes maybe there could have been lots of prim- primordial incredible amounts of primordial black holes that were formed maybe they could form some part of dark matter or 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 bound states of primordial black holes may may be a component of the cold dark matter that we know exists in the universe and so on so that's why black holes come in different sizes all right different masses um, and so on now what about the different sizes of infinity now this is an interesting question and i, I and to explain this i should show something on the screen uh, i am sure you all know what a number line is yes what's a number line? let me show no, let me let me put a number line on the screen with which i shall demonstrate that infinity comes in different sizes so here we have a number line we have three number lines let's took a, take a look at the topmost number line Uh, which goes in both directions it's from 0 1 2 3 4 all the way to 10 and the arrows indicate that the number line goes on up to infinity in both directions so 10 11 12 etc and from 0 if you go to the left it is 0 minus 1 minus 2 all the way to minus infinity right that is number line number 1 now let us take so essentially between 0 and 10 how many numbers do you have 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 four numbers now let's take the space between 0 and 1 you can construct a number line between 0 and 1 as well and you have the decimals right 0.1 0.2 0.3 all the way to 0.9 and then 1.0 now let's take the space between 0 and 0.1 between that you have 
a whole different number line 0.01 0.02 and so on all the way to 0.09 and 0.10 and you can go deeper and deeper into it between 0 and 0.01 you will have other numbers and so on what i'm trying to say is that between 0 and 10 you can place an infinite number of numbers so there is an infinity there is an infinite number of points or numbers between 0 and 10 that is infinity you also have an infinite number of points or numbers between 0 and 1 that is also infinity you also have an infinite number of points or numbers between 0 and 0.1 that is also infinity so we are talking about three different infinities here between 0 and 10 between 0 and 1 and between 0 and 0.1 all three are infinity but we know that the space between 0 and 10 is larger then the space between 0 and 1 and that space is larger than the space between 0 and 0.1 what does this tell us it tells us that infinities come in different sizes <laughs> which doesn't make sense but when you look at the number line it becomes clear that even though all these three quantities are infinities they have different sizes which means that certain infinities are larger than other infinities and as a kid when you first understand this concept it kind of causes a little bit of brain damage <laughs> so yeah that's what we mean by different sizes of infinity infinity is infinite and yet it comes in different sizes that is the strangest thing you come across as a kid i mean if you ever think of it in mathematics yeah so that's what we mean by different sizes of infinity Okay, Swapnil says, "Can you explain the Drake equation hypothesized by the astrobiologist Frank Drake? Was it a legitimate or a failed experiment? The Drake equation is not an experiment; it's an equation. Uh, it is an ex- equation that uh, seeks to uh, kind of put a number on, put put an, uh, give us a handle or give us an approximate idea of how many." intelligent civilizations exist within our own home galaxy non earth non non human civilizations so let me show you what this equation is like it's got a number of parameters let us uh, share the screen here it is yes so this is the drake equation okay n is the number of detectable civil uh, civilizations in the milky way galaxy in our home galaxy n is equal to r star Times FP times NE times FI times times FL times FI times FC times L. Now, what do these parameters mean? N is what we want to see, what we want to calculate, the number of detectable civilizations currently that currently exist in the Milky Way galaxy, in our home galaxy. R star is the rate at which stars are born per year. How many stars are born in the Milky Way? per year let's say it's 1 let's say it's 10 whatever the number is so we will have to so that is the the meaning of r star what is fp it is the fraction of do, of stars that hosts planets so let's say you have take any random 100 stars in the milky way at random how many of these stars have planets so that is the fraction that we are talking about right the fraction of stars that host planets ne is the number of habitable planets per planetary system yes so out of these stars that actually have planets how many of these 
planetary systems or star systems have planets that are actually habitable. Like Earth, like what, what it means is how many of these uh, have Earth-like planets. That fraction, F L, is the fraction of those planets on which life actually evolves, and that is something we have to completely guess because we have never found life anywhere except for Earth. But we may be able to guess, may arrive at an intelligent guess as to what is the fraction of those planets on which life evolves. F I is the fraction of life that evolves intelligence. FC is the fraction of intelligent life that becomes communicative, that develops communicative technologies. And L is the average length of time that civilizations are detectable. So if you multiply, multiply all these parameters together, it gives you N, which is the number of detectable civilizations that currently exist in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, a lot of, a lot of these parameters are simply guesswork. We can uh, give, we could... Uh, Calculate R star reasonably accurately. Maybe it's around one star per year or 10 stars per year, per year somewhere, somewhere around that. FP also, because we have now a lot of observational data, it looks like the fraction of stars that host planets could be close to one, 0.5 or one, based on how many we have observed. We know there are lots of exoplanets out there. It looks like planets are very common. So it could be close to one, the FP. NE... Uh, could be around 0 0.1 or so, maybe 0 0.2. I'm just guessing here. Yeah. F R F L. We don't know. We don't know. Let's say it is. It's it's one or let's say it's 0 0.5. Whatever. That's another guess. F I is absolutely conjectural. We have no idea of knowing. But we could put in a number just to see how it works. F C also we don't know. And L is again guesswork. So as you can see, this is an equation that uh, that involves a lot of guesswork. You plug in different values for these parameters, you get very different, wildly different values of n. n is the number of detectable civilizations that currently exist right now as of today in the Milky Way galaxy. Right? So this is not an experiment. This is this is uh, an equation that serves as the beginning of a conversation. Yeah, so I think it was developed as part of the SETI project. SETI is Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So when this uh, project started, which sought to, de to detect signs of uh, intelligent life in other parts of the of the galaxy and other galaxies possibly, uh, people the, the, the scientists wanted to under, to have some kind of a number as to how many, as to how common or uncommon or rare intelligent life could be in our galaxy. And that is what gave rise to this equation. And as you can see, we don't have uh, hard numbers that we could plug into this. So a lot of it is guesswork. And based on this guesswork, the number of N, the N, the value of N ranges from one to thousands possibly. So that's how it is. But it's an interesting conversation starter and it's something that, uh, that people discuss from time to time. So that is what this Drake equation is. It's not an experiment, it's an equation which seeks to kind of give us a handle on how many intelligent civilizations could currently exist in our home galaxy. Romit says, what is your take on the Fermi paradox? Okay, what is the Fermi paradox? The Fermi paradox could be asked in the form of a question. Where are all the aliens? Right? 
there are so many stars in our galaxy how many 100 100 billion i believe it's a 100 billion plus give or take those many stars in our home galaxy the milky way 100 billion let's say how many galaxies exist out there i believe uh, hundreds of billions maybe 200 billion galaxies in the known universe possibly yeah so if you calculate and and let's say all galaxies have approximately the same number of stars as the milky way and so on so if you calculate the number of stars in the observable universe it's about 10 raised to 23 or 24 one with 23 or 24 zeros after that after it give or take right that is an incredibly large number of stars in i mean it's it's hard to conceive such a large number so if you have so many stars in the observable universe is it not likely that there will be there will be life out there that life could be quite common there could be billions trillions of intelligent civilizations out there right it should be quite common given the enormous number of stars that exist in the observable universe so if life is, should be that common statistically speaking if life should be that common then where are all the aliens where are they why don't we see any of them that is the fermi paradox that is the question that i believe enrico fermi asked to his colleagues that's the fermi paradox statistically speaking life should be common so if it is common why don't we see any signs of life anywhere that is it and and um, there are lots of different possible answers to that uh one answer is that life is not common we are the only <laughs> life out there in the entire universe which makes us incredibly unique that is one possible solution to the fermi paradox the other solution is that life is everywhere but it doesn't want us to see it there is something called uh, the zoo hypothesis the earth is a zoo and we are being observed but we have no idea we are being, we are being observed think of it like this think of a petri dish in which you have microbes a colony of microbes a few million microbes or let's say let's say 8 billion microbes living in a petri dish this petri dish is in a lab and scientists are observing it through a microscope and in this petri dish these bacteria they're talking to each other we are so intelligent but we see no life out there where is all the life yeah and they have no idea that they are currently being observed so maybe there could be intelligences out there that are so highly advanced that compared to them we are like little bacteria yes and we have no means of knowing that we are currently actively being observed and studied so that is a possibility the zoo hypothesis the other there are various other uh, possibilities there is the great filters hypothesis that life could actually be common but there are certain hard barriers that life uh, encounters that ensures that we don't get to see that it exists maybe a uh, life intelligent life has a tendency to destroy itself we have developed various technologies that are very dangerous nuclear weapons etc maybe in the future we may run into a great barrier a nuclear war which annihilates everything that is a possibility or 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 sends us back to the stone age that's a possibility right or there could be certain cataclysmic events you know that kill off life every once in every few million or billion years that is also a possibility extinction events global catastrophes cataclysmic events like uh, uh, there are lots of uh, astrophysical events that could end life right on a planet so that sort of thing is there 
maybe maybe it may be the case that once a civilization becomes reaches a certain stage it transmits information for a certain time period and then the transmissions stop so we still have radio waves which go out into into space but eventually our technologies will become so effective that efficient that we will not have to broadcast radio waves into the atmosphere and into space we may be able to communicate without doing that so we may stop transmitting right so maybe in a century or so we, we may no longer be transmitting the way we were, we were transmitting in the 20th century and and even right now so maybe intelligent civilizations transmit only for a century or two and then all transmissions stop that is a possibility there may be a possibility that intelligent life is common but it is very dangerous to other intelligent life and that's why all intelligent civilizations try to hide themselves i think it's called the dark forest hypothesis let's say you are traveling in the night through a forest it's a dark forest right now we know that in this dark forest there are other animals some could be nice but there could be tigers there could be leopards there could be pythons there could be crocodiles and various other things so what is the optimum way of being in a dark forest try to stay hidden you may encounter an animal that is har- harmless but you may encounter an animal that may terminate you so the optimum solution is to assume that all life that exists in this dark forest is out to kill me be extraordinarily paranoid and hide yourself that is the best uh, um optimum solution for survival so there is a dark forest hypothesis that all life assumes all intelligent life assumes that any other intelligent intelligence it encounters is a uh, life threatening for it and that's why you hide yourself you don't transmit you just stay hidden so there could be lots of other civilizations out there but they are not stupid enough to broadcast their location and that kind of tells us that we should not be stupid enough to send radio waves into space and broadcast our location to various stars like some astronomers and and scientists have done that may be a very 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 um, bad thing to do and so on so there are different uh, such theories hypotheses that have been put forth we don't quite have the solution right now because thus far we have not found any sign of even non intelligent life beyond our home planet there could be there are potential locations in our own solar system where microbial life or or lower level life could exist uh places like venus venus is a possibility mars is a possibility um the the moon europa the moon titan etc there could be other places in our own solar system where life could exist there could be a subsurface ocean on pluto itself where possibly life may exist if it is liquid water then it is warm reasonably warm and life could exist there so there are lots of possibilities so if we are able to find life somewhere else in our own solar system first of all that could indicate that life could be really very common out out there and that's why and and, and then if life indeed exists elsewhere it means that a certain percentage certain fraction of the life becomes intelligent like in the drake equation there is a fraction there is a there is a term for that let me put that back on the screen here is the drake in, inter, the drake equation the fraction of life that evolves intelligence fi so there would be once we know that life does exist elsewhere then it this uh, this term fi comes into the picture and so on 
so there are different hypotheses we don't quite know what what's going on we are still like those little microbes in a petri dish yeah we may think that we are hyper intelligent and all that we have all this technology at our disposal all this science at our disposal and yet we may be like those microbes compared to other hypothetical intelligent beings yeah so that is what the fermi paradox is Abhishek says, what orbit does the James Webb Space Telescope follow? Does it orbit the Earth or the Sun? The James Webb Space Telescope is orbiting the L2 Lagrange point. Now, what is a Lagrange point? What is this thing? So, we have the Earth-Sun system. Let me bring in my fruits again. So, imagine that this pomegranate, red, is the Sun. Imagine that this little yellow limon is the earth. So we have the earth-sun system. The sun is large. The earth is way smaller than the sun. All right? Both have a gravitational attraction. And the earth goes around the sun in an orbit. Right? So if you look at the gravitational pull of the sun, which is much larger than that of the earth. And let's say you have a third object that you want to place between the earth and the sun. There will be... And if you draw a straight line between the Earth and the Sun, there will be a place on the straight line where the gravitational pull of the Earth and the Sun cancels each other out and that object may be able to remain indefinitely in that place. That is the L1 Lagrange point. Let me show you a, a, an image, a schematic of this. What do these Lagrange points look like? There are five of them. Here we are. So the L1 Lagrange point is the point between, it's an equilibrium point between the Earth and the Sun. It is not quite stable. It is what's called, called a metastable Lagrange point. There is another point called L2, which is in the same straight line, but it's behind the Earth. So in the, stra in the straight line be between the Earth and the Sun, behind the Earth, there is another equilibrium point called the L2 Lagrange point. And that's where the James Webb Space Telescope has been parked. Other uh, telescopes were also have also been parked there, like the WMAP telescope, Wilkinson Microscope, uh, Microwave Anisotropy Probe, WMAP, I believe it's, it's called. Then there is an L3 point that is behind the... Uh, on the other side. So if you take a straight line between the Earth and the Sun, then the, on the other side you have the L3 point. And then you have the two equilateral triangle points, L4 and L5. So if you take the Sun, the Earth and L4, that forms an equilateral triangle. And similarly for L5 also, we have an equilateral triangle. The L4 and L5 Lagrange points are reasonably stable. They are not metastable, they are actually stable. You put something there, it will stay there. But if you put something in L1 or L2 or L3, those points are kind of metastable. So you need to spend a little bit of energy, a little bit of fuel to keep that spacecraft in that point. In the future, you may have spacecraft, even space stations stationed at these points. Maybe in 100 years, maybe in, a two, maybe in 200 years, if we, if we do well, if we evolve our technology further, we may have spacecraft, space stations sitting at L3, uh, L5, especially at L4 and L5, right? So these are Lagrange points. And uh, that's where, and especially at L2, that's where we park spacecraft. It's not very stable. So the spacecraft needs to have some fuel, small rocket engines to periodically adjust the orbit 
so that it stays in uh, in place so the james webb space telescope is not exactly at l2 it is orbiting the l2 lagrange point so the these points are called lagrange points because they were first calculated by a guy called lagrange about 2 or 300 years before today look it up if you if you are interested when exactly that happened right he was a mathematician uh so that's what it is right that's what that's where the james webb space telescope is parked in orbit around the l2 lagrange point it's interesting that it's not only the earth that has lagrange points even the earth moon system has lagrange points but that is kind of messed up by the gra enormous gravitational pull of the sun jupiter has lagrange points the uh, Jup jupiter's lagrange points are called the trojan points uh, so if you look at uh, Uh, imagine instead of the earth we have jupiter the so jupiter will also have all the same lagrange points but in the case of jupiter they are called the trojan points and in in the l4 and l5 regions of jupiter we have these i don't know thousands or millions of asteroids that clump around that place they are called the trojan asteroids right so jupiter uh, is like a shepherd and the sheep are all these millions of trojan asteroids that clump in the lagrangian points of jupiter so that's a natural phenomenon that we observe so that is what the lagrange points are and that is where jwst is parked in orbit around the l2 lagrange point vishal says what is orbital eccentricity all right what is first of all forget about orbital eccentricity what is eccentricity from the point of view of geometry so in geometry uh you we all know what a circle looks like it's a circle uh, we also have something called an ellipse in ge geometry it's a conic section uh, let me put that on the screen conic sections so that you actually get to see it conic sections and let me put that on the screen give me a second here we are conic sections no map today only conic sections hey there all right these are conic sections so if you take a cone and you slice it up that's what we get we get circles we get ellipses we get par parabolas we get hyperbolas and each of these guys has its own equation and you can study it if you're interested right conic sections so a circle is perfectly circular an ellipse is like a squashed circle you take a circle and you squash it you get an ellipse so an ellipse has something called eccentricity let's take a look at eccentricity of ellipse all right so every ellipse ellipse has a certain eccentricity which you can which is part of the formula which is c by a and so on now let me show you the eccentricity of orbits orbital eccentricity right orbital eccentricity so orbits are like ellipses and here is an example of orbital eccentricity uh, let me put that on a different page and show you that page so that you get a better idea of what it is so the ellipse uh, so the orbits of the various planets etc around the sun are not perfectly circular they are elliptical orbits and that's what it looks like so based on the different uh values of the eccentricity we get these different shapes of ellipses and the same goes for satellites you could have satellites in a circular orbit you could have satellites in squashed uh, 
elongated or elliptical orbits and each orbit has a certain value of its eccentricity and that's what orbital eccentricity is all right so it's all about geometry you study geometry you will immediately understand what uh what eccentricity is now let me show you the various orbits let me quickly show you what elliptical orbits look like in the solar system so in the solar system none of the orbits of the planets is perfectly spherical let's take a look at this so there is a hypothetical planet 9 and various other objects in the solar system they all have orbits with varying eccentricity right so that's what we mean by orbital eccentricity all right hope that makes sense right moving on to the next question brown nerd says since only about five percent of the oceans have been explored do you believe there's intelligent life deep in the oceans beings such as mermaids and mermen and mer-beings, right <laughs> um i believe it, it's indeed true that we have explored next to nothing of the oceans the oceans are are, com- are almost completely unknown to us right uh light goes penetrates the, the ocean about to a depth to a depth of about 100 meters so if you go below 100 meters into the ocean it's all dark there's no light at all you have bioluminescent fish and organisms etc but that is few and far between so the vast amount of the ocean out there is dark there's no light and we don't quite know what what lurks deep beneath the surface of the oceans we have submarine cables and all which we've been able to lay we have sonars that tell us what the surface of the ocean looks like yeah we have submarines that make use of the these undersea uh, features that navigate through them we have detailed maps topological maps of the subsurface uh, sub sub ocean surface of the earth and so on so we have some idea but we haven't actually been there and seen what exactly what kind of life is there so it is possible that there could be lots of unknown species that lurk in the deep depths of the oceans. Yes, indeed true. People speculate there could be certain varieties of dinosaurs that may exist. They may have evolved the ability to, to you know, to do that without oxygen, to, to have gills or whatever possibly and, and live and, and uh, respirate the way ship, uh, fishes do, etc. So it is very likely that there could be a large number of completely unknown species of of fish and other marine life that we still haven't encountered or discovered thus far. That is certainly possible. That That is a fact. It's there. We discover new species every year. You know, marine species. That that happens all the time. When it comes to intelligent life, I believe it's unlikely. The probability is low. It's not zero. The probability is not zero. But I think the probability is low. Why do I say that? Because intelligent life, one of the signs, one of the hallmarks of intelligence is curiosity. If you are intelligent, you're going to be curious about what else is out there. And you may travel, you may venture around the oceans. And if you travel, if you venture, if you go to new places, you will be discovered. So intelligent life has this tendency to to be discovered, to make itself known. Yeah. But on the other hand, if it is really intelligent, it would know that it's a wise thing to stay away from humans because humans humans are aggressive and they're violent and they're destructive 
maybe they are observing us and <laughs> they know that they should stay away from us that is also a possibility so what do i think i believe that the probability of intelligent life existing deep under the oceans is low it's not zero if it does exist then it's very smart it knows to stay away from humans yeah but there is no evidence of that and yet it may it may possibly exist the prob- probability is low and remote karthik says animals also have blood groups when one animal hunts another animal doesn't the prey's blood get infused in its body won't that cause any harm to the predator due to the entry of foreign blood mm foreign blood so it's like this in human beings we have blood groups right and um if by mistake or by accident someone were to infuse a person with blood who has let's say hypothetically blood group a and you were to infuse blood group b or something else into the person there would be a very strong and and adverse biological reaction which may cause the death of that person the death of the recipient so we have to make sure that we match the blood groups and we don't mix it up right and when it comes to the blood of other species if you infuse that into your body there's going to be terrible immunological reaction you may end up losing your life or you may end up getting really really sick you may have the entry of uh, bacteria and other organisms from another species into you and your immune system may not know how to deal with that and that could cause all kinds of complications maybe even death so yes that is there now when an animal predates hunts another animal let's say you have a tyrannosaurus rex okay let's not go that far back let's say you have a lion that uh hunts a crocodile in the river right so the, there's a big struggle and the crocodile bite, bites the lion the lion bites the crocodile at the end the lion is larger and stronger he wins he pulls the crocodile out of the out of the out of the river snaps its neck and then proceeds to have a nice big feast right and of course when the lion eats the flesh of the crocodile the blood of the crocodile will go into the lion's stomach now here's the difference we are not doing a transfusion of the crocodile's blood into the into the lion's blood we are not doing that the blood and the tissue etc which is masticated chewed etc goes into the alimentary canal of the lion settles down into the stomach it is processed over there there are stomach acids that break down in enzymes etc that break down the tissues into more into simpler uh, into a simpler form it's then transferred into the esophagus and into the small intestine where it is processed further and further and further and that's what happens so the blood of the animal that is preyed upon is not infused or transfused directly into the blood stream of the lion it is it goes through the alimentary canal into the digestive system and the digestive system is equipped to handle these foreign substances there is a purifying mechanism the liver the liver is the great purifier anything that is harmful or toxic in any way is uh, removed and it is it is uh, filtered essentially by the liver that's why the, the so we have all these fail safe mechanisms in the human in the human body and all animals have livers even sharks have livers etc right so so that's why it doesn't cause any harm if you were to take the blood of a crocodile and sedate a lion and then infuse that 
intravenously into into the, the into a lion's bloodstream that could end up killing the lion that could cause significant amount of harm to the lion or species x to species y it will cause harm right mm-hmm. but as long as that species that, that animal is eating another animal it goes through the proper channels like they say yeah if the blood and the tissue and the meat etc flesh goes through the proper channels which is through the digestive through the digestive system then all is well because the digestive system has all these checks and balances that ensure that nothing that's not supposed to go into the bloodstream is allowed to go in there and that's how it works and that's why no such harm ensues okay priyanka says as we know only 5% of the universe that is 200 billion galaxies are in the 5% universe um uh, yes that is indeed correct uh, i don't know how many galaxies are there in the, in the in the universe you can google it let's say it's 200 billion maybe yeah i don't remember all the all the numbers so let's say there are let's say there are 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe which is a spherical ball with you at the center right so yes everything we observe in the universe is actually 5% of the mass energy composition of the universe all these galaxies all the stars that we observe all the dust clouds and the nebulae that we observe every single thing that we observe in the universe it actually makes up less than 5% of the actual mass energy composition of the universe 95% of the universe is dark and unknown to us we are made up of special stuff we are electromagnetic beings that's what we are light is an electromagnetic phenomenon we see things the reason why i'm not falling through the chair that i'm sitting in is because of the electromagnetic force and the pauli exclusion principle and so on and so forth right that's why matter has has occupies occupies space and so on so yes uh, what you are saying is correct everything that we observe in the entire universe is just 5% of the mass energy composition of the universe Pulkit says, "What is dark matter and dark energy?" Well, good follow-up question. What is dark matter and what is dark energy? So, obviously, this is something I've answered lots of times. But for the sake of, uh, for the benefit of those who have joined recently, for the new viewers, let me explain what is dark matter and dark energy. So, uh, everything we observe, like I said, in the universe, every single galaxy, every single star, every single exoplanet every single gas cloud every single nebula everything we observe makes up only 5% about 5% or somewhat less than 5% of the actual mass energy composition of the universe that we live in of the observable universe about 68% of the mass energy composition of the universe is what we call dark energy and about 27% is what we call dark matter if you want to keep it simple make it 70 25 70% dark energy 24 25% dark matter 5% visible matter of which we are made so how do we know this oh we were able to figure out that something called dark matter exists because galactic because of galactic rotation curves let me show you what those are 
Galactic rotation curves. What are these things? Let's let's put that on the screen. Yes. So this is an example. This is a very famous graph. Galactic rotation curves. So when you see a galaxy, galaxies rotate. We know that. We know that galaxies rotate around their uh, center of mass. So uh, when you see the amount of mass, visible mass, a galaxy has based on its luminosity and various other things, we expect it to to rotate at a certain speed. And yet, when we actually do the observations of galaxies all across the universe, uh, the observable universe, we find that the rotation speed is different. It's as if there is much more mass in the galaxy than what we are seeing, right? So it is because of this phenomenon, this observational evidence, which which we were able to see over and over again in all kinds of galaxies. It's because of this that we were able to figure out that there is some unseen matter that lurks around galaxies. So all galaxies have a dark matter halo, which also rotates with the galaxy, right? And that's why we have this uh, difference in what we between what we expect and what we actually observe. So let me see galactic halo, what it looks like. What does a galactic halo look like? So typically a halo is more or less spherical. Yeah. And uh, all most galaxies are enveloped or shrouded in these dark matter halos. So this is one example. A galaxy, a galaxy has is, is a flat kind of thing. A spiral galaxy is more or less flat. It's a, it has a galactic plane. And yet there is a dark matter halo all around it. It's more or less spherical, right? This is another interesting such picture. So that's how we know that dark matter exists. Now, what is dark energy? Dark energy, so dark matter, what it does is that it tends to, to, to it acts like a glue, right? So it keeps the galaxy together. It, it, is, it, 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 is, it has an attractive gravitational force. We can observe the, we can deduce the existence of dark matter also through the phenomenon of galactic lensing. Let me show you what that looks like. Galactic lensing. So something in galactic lensing, objects appear distorted, as if there's a, as if we are observing that object through a lens. So this is a very, <laughs> very nice example of that. Yeah. Sometimes you see double images, sometimes you see galaxies that, that, that look stretched out and so on. So this indicates that there is a massive object between us and the galaxy or, or the object that we are observing. And that is distorting space-time itself. Yeah, that is what general relativity tells us. And that's how we know that there is, uh, there is something out there. And that sometimes is an indication of a black hole or sometimes it, it tells us there is dark matter over there between us and the object we are observing. So that's how we know dark matter exists. Dark in, and dark matter is 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 massive and it it has uh, an attractive it, it the the gravitational effect is attractive. Dark energy on the other hand it is something that causes the expansion of the universe. You can think of dark energy like it's a fifth force in the universe. We know there are four forces, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and the gravitational force. Dark energy is like repulsive gra gravity. It actually pushes th things apart. We know that the universe is expanding. We know that something is causing the universe to, the, the expansion of the universe to accelerate. Not only is the universe expanding, 
this expansion is accelerating over time. There is some unknown force or energy in the universe that is causing this to happen. And that is what we call dark energy. So you can think of dark energy as, as, as a fifth force, as a repulsive form of gravity or whatever you want to call it. And it accounts for roughly 70% of the mass energy composition of the universe. All right. So that's dark matter, roughly 25%. Dark energy, roughly 70%. And visible matter of which we are made, which is about 5% of the mass energy composition of the, of the universe, which means we are made up of special stuff, only 5%. The other stuff, the common stuff is invisible. We don't know what it is, but it's out there. So that is dark matter and dark energy. Krishna says, if light in the universe is about 13.8 billion years old, how can we observe the observable universe, which has a radius of more than 40 billion light years. So uh, the best theory that we have of the origin of, of the of the universe is, is the so-called Big Bang theory, yes. And we know that the universe is roughly 13.8 billion years old. The oldest light that we observe in the universe is about 300 million years. It's from about 300 million years roughly after the Big Bang happened. That is the oldest light in the universe. It's stretched out into the infrared uh, wavelengths. And that's what uh, the James Webb Space Telescope is tasked with observing. So the oldest light is about, let's say, around 13.5 billion years old, yes. Um, so the most distant objects traveling at the speed of light would be 13.5 billion years, uh, billion light years away from us. So the observable universe is like a sphere. Let me show you what that looks like. Observable universe. What does it look like? Well, let's take a look at a representation of that. So let's say that this is a schematic of the observable universe. Is this it? Okay, we're talking about parsecs and all that. This is a cross-section of that and so on. So what we find is that the radius of this observable universe is not 13.5 billion light years. It's actually about 45, 45 billion light years uh, in, in radius. So why is it so? So this is... A, you can explain this quite simply. It's because of the expansion, the accelerating expansion of the universe. Because the universe is expanding in an accelerated rate, at an accelerated rate, that's why it has gone so much further away. And the oldest and the furthest light that we see, even though it's just 30.8, 30.5 billion years old, yet the radius or the diameter of the, of the observable universe is, is so large. So the radius is about 45, 46 billion light years. The diameter is about 90, 91, 92 billion light years because the universe is expanding. And every single day that passes, there are certain parts of the observable universe that disappear forever. Because beyond a certain point, the expansion of space-time becomes super-luminal. The expansion 
becomes faster than the speed of light, light, light itself. And that does not break the laws of physics. The fastest, the speed limit within space-time is the speed of light. But space-time itself can expand even faster than the speed of light. And because of this, there are parts of the observable universe that every single day, every single minute, every single second are going forever beyond our observational range. Right? So that's what's happening. Eventually, in the distant future, the observable universe will be simply the Milky Way. We will be able to observe nothing beyond that. And eventually, one day, only the solar system will be left. So that's what's going to happen in the very distant future because of the expansion of the universe caused by this strange thing called this unknown, mysterious substance or force called dark energy. Okay, T1 says, can we get our hands on a bottle of dense dark matter? You know, you can't get your hands on a bottle of dense dark matter, but if you have an empty bottle in your hand, it contains dark matter. Right now, there is dark matter in this room. Most likely there is dark matter in this room. The solar system, the earth, passes through uh, clouds of dark matter. Like I said, there is a dark matter halo that envelopes our galaxy. Our, the visible part of the galaxy is just a small portion, maybe 10% of, uh, maybe roughly 10% of the mass energy of the, of the entire galaxy. Around 90% could be dark matter, which means that we are enveloped in a massive halo, massive cloud of dark matter, which means there is there are dark matter particles right now in this room where, where I am and right now wherever you are. Dark matter particles are passing through your bodies as we speak. Um, and dark matter is most likely some, some particle or, or some family or class of particles that are purely gravitating in nature. They only interact through the gravitation, gravitational force and not through any of the other three forces. The gravitational force is many, many, many orders of magnitude weaker than the weak nuclear force. Solar neutrinos interact weakly via the weak force. As we speak, every second as we speak, trillions of solar neutrinos pass through our body. Right now, every second, trillions of these solar neutrinos that come from the sun are passing through my body. I don't feel anything because they interact so weakly. So if that is the weak force, imagine how weak gravitation is. So there are all these dark matter particles that are passing through us every single moment and we don't realize that. You have an empty bottle, most likely there, there's dark matter within it, but it's passing through it. You cannot confine it in your bottle. It will simply pass through your bottle as if the bottle doesn't exist. Uh, so yeah, that's what it is. Weibov says, please explain what the Higgs boson is. All right. What is the Higgs boson? What is the Higgs field? Um, so from the point of view of the standard model, the standard model, the standard model of physics says, and this has been experimentally proven, rigorously tested, the standard model of physics tells us that there are 16 known elementary particles. Let me show you what that looks like. Uh, demonstrate that. Give me a second, please. Let me share my screen and show you the standard model of elementary particles. 
here we are so we have 16 known particles all right we have the quarks up down top bottom strange charm six different kinds of quarks we have six leptons the electron the muon the tau and their corresponding neutrinos and you have there used to be four bosons now there are five bosons so the gluon the photon the z boson the w boson and the higgs boson so these are the various uh, these are the 17 fundamental particles that we know of. And from the perspective of quantum field theory, quantum field theory tells us that the world that we inhabit, the world that we perceive and observe is an illusion. What actually the, the universe is actually made up of fields, interacting fields. And all these elementary particles are merely local excitations in these fields. So there is an electron field that permeates, a three-dimensional electron field that permeates the entire universe. And every single electron in my body is merely a local excitation in that inf almost infinite electron field. Similarly, every proton is made up of quarks. The quarks have their own fields. When they interact together, they form bound states that appear to be protons and all. But everything is just fields and all these elementary particles are local excitations in these fields. Now, there is something called a Higgs field. So, uh, in the 1960s, it was proposed that the universe, we did not understand how, where does mass come from? Why are certain elementary particles massive? Why do certain particles have more mass? Why are certain particles like the photon massless? Why is it so? So in the, I think it was in the 1960s that Peter Higgs and a couple of other physicists put forth the, 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 a theory that there is a fifth boson, which is now called the Higgs boson. And it so if there is a Higgs boson, it will have a Higgs field that permeates the entire universe. And it is the interaction of particles, of elementary particles, with this Higgs field that endows them with mass or not. So if some particles interact weakly with the Higgs field, then they have small masses. If certain particles interact strongly with the Higgs field, they have larger masses. And particles that simply don't interact with the, big, with the Higgs field are massless. So that is what was... Uh, proposed in the 1960s the theory was constructed made out and in 2012 i believe in the large hadron collider we finally found evidence that the higgs boson does exist yeah so this particle was finally discovered after a very long time in 2012 i believe and that is the one major discovery that we have seen coming out of the large hadron collider in geneva switzerland so that's what the higgs field is that's what the higgs boson is Without this particle, the universe would be a massless place. So, so mass itself is like a force in a way, in a way, yeah. So that's why certain particles are more massive, certain particles are less massive. The, the the most massive particle we know of is the top quark. Once again, let me put that on the screen. The top quark is the most massive particle that we know of, right? You can see it's one seventy three point one GeV. And what that is, you can go, you can look it up. What a GeV is, GeV. Okay, so that's the most massive particle, which means that it interacts very strongly 
with the Higgs field. There is a very interesting analogy that people have given. It's not something I have come up with, but it's very interesting to think of in this way. Let's say you have, let's say you have a restaurant or, or let's say you have a hall, okay? A big hall in which you have lots of people. At one end of this hall, there is a bar where you can go and get drinks. And the door is at the other end of the hall. Now, when a famous person comes into the hall and they want to get to the bar, it will be hard for them to get there because everybody converges on them. Oh, yeah, I'll give you, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. Can I have an autograph? Can I have a selfie? So it'll be very hard. It'll take a lot of time for that famous person to cross the hall and reach the bar. So the hall is filled with people and they all recognize the celebrity and they all want to go and talk to them. But if a completely unknown person comes into the hall in, and wants to go to the bar, they will be able to go without any interaction with the crowd. So the crowd in this hall can be thought of as the Higgs field. And if you are completely unknown, you can pass through the crowd without any interaction with the, with the field, with the Higgs field. So then you are massless. But if you are a celebrity, everybody wants to talk to you. So it's very hard to reach the bar. So that is a very massive particle and a particle that interacts very strongly with the Higgs field. So that is an interesting analogy that, that people have come up with, right? So that, in brief, is about the Higgs field and the Higgs boson. Debajit says the bright star Sirius is roughly 8.6 light years away. Does it mean that when you see it in the sky tonight, you're actually seeing Sirius the way it was 8.6 years ago? Absolutely right. Light takes 8.6 years to reach here from that star. So, what you are seeing is light that came from the star, that began its journey from the star 8.6 years ago. So if you have a telescope, you're looking there, you're seeing what happened 8.6 years ago. Yeah. You're not something that's you're not seeing something that's happening right now. In in relativity, simultaneity is a, is a tricky concept. It doesn't really happen. It's it's not really a concept that makes sense from the perspective of relativity, from special relativity. There is the relativity of simultaneity, which you can study, which means that any two events from a certain perspective can be seen as happening simultaneously. So it depends on your frame of reference and where you are and so on. But yes, from our perspective, from our frame of reference, where we are on our planet, what we see when we observe light from Sirius, we are seeing something that happened 8.6 million, uh, 8.6 years ago. Let's say you're observing a galaxy that is 10 million years away from here. You look at the telescope and you see the image. That's You're seeing something that you're seeing light that started its journey from there 10 million years before today. So you're seeing what happened there 10 million years ago. That's how it is. Nikhil says, suppose we have a time machine. And we have a pair of quantum entangled particles. We keep one here and we take one particle back to the past. Will the quantum entanglement still work? And if yes, can we say that information can travel across time? Well, okay, let's first of all understand what quantum entanglement is. A very simplistic analogy is a pair of gloves. 
a left-handed glove and a right-handed glove. Let's say you are sitting in the city of Bengaluru, okay, and you send one glove. Okay, let's say you are sitting in 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 Mumbai. All right, let's say you are sitting in Mumbai. You put one glove in a sealed package and send it to Bangalore. You take the other glove, put it in a sealed package and send it to Berlin. So your friend in Bangalore receives one 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 of the gloves, and your friend in Berlin re- receives the other glove. Now let's say your friend in Berlin opens the glove and he or she finds a right-handed glove, then they will immediately know that your other friend in Bangalore has a left-handed glove. Now let's say you send one of the gloves to the Andromeda galaxy and one of the other gloves to to star Sirius. So when your friend on Andromeda receives the glove and sees what it is, then even though Sirius is 1.5 million light years away, he or she, your alien friend, will immediately know that your friend on the other star, on Sirius, has received the left-handed glove, right? So information seems to be traveling faster than faster than the speed of light, which is not quite the case, but it's a, it's a system. So an entangled system is a quantum system whose wave function, who, which has a single wave function. That's what it is. That's how you could put it across. So uh, when you have information of one part of the system, you immediately know what the other, other part of the system is like. So that is what entanglement is. So let's say, like, like Nikhil is saying, we have a pair of quantum entangled particles. Let's say you have two particles, one with spin up, one with spin down. They, they are in a state of entanglement, which means that if you see one particle, you will immediately know what the other, other particle's state is, right? And he says, if we keep one here, we take the other particle back to the past. Well, that is unphysical. That's where your, your uh, thought experiment breaks down. Because there is no way of sending anything back to the past. Time machines don't exist. Right? So the thought experiment is unphysical. You're, you're, you're adding an element of magic to it. Right? So if we were to somehow make it happen, if we were to actually invent a time machine that could take things back to the past, if that were possible, then it could mean that quantum entanglement could actually happen across time periods, back in time, etc. But it's not information traveling from one place to another. Understand that properly. What you really need to understand is that no information is traveling. There is no superluminal transmission of information. Yeah, you cannot have communications through through entanglement. It's just that when you see one particle, you immediately know what the state of the other particle is, and that's all. There is no actual communication or transmission that is happening. So even if you could send one particle back in time and keep another one with you, then the person who is, let's say, 100 years in the past could know what the other particle is like 100 years in the future. Yes. But no communication is happening. No transmission is happening. So even if you could do this, information cannot travel through time. Quantum entanglement is not about transmission of information. It's not about communication of information. It's just about a single system that uh, it is about, about a system of particles that has a single uh, wave function. Who's, so if you know one, you know the other, the state of the other one. That's all quantum entanglement is. 
Aditya says there are infinite stars in the universe, but still the night sky is dark. When we are in a rainforest, we cannot even see the sun because of dense vegetation. Then why don't we see the sky filled with stars, which are trillions in number? In other words, please explain Olber's paradox. Olber's paradox. Uh, okay, I don't know what Olber's paradox is, but let me address the question, which seems to mean Olber's paradox. The stars are not trillions in number. The approximate number of stars in the observable universe is about 10 raised to 24, 23 or 24, roughly. Give or take a couple of zeros here or there, right? So that's an insane number of stars, 10 raised to 23, let's say. Understand this, 10 to the power of 23, one with 23 zeros is not infinity. It's a finite number. It's a very, very, very large number. Hard to imagine, hard to comprehend, but it is not infinity. If there were an infinite number of stars in the observable universe, there would be a star sitting right here. There would be stars everywhere. Right here, I would be inside a star then. But I'm not inside a star. Which means that the number of stars in the universe is not infinite. It is finite. It can be approximated to around 10 raised to 23 or 24. So, the first assumption that you have made is not correct. There are not an infinite number of stars in the universe. There is a finite number of stars. And if you look at space, from all the observational evidence that we have, from all the instruments over all of human history, we know that space is mostly empty. When galaxies collide, they're not really colliding. They're simply merging. There is no actual collision of stars ever. Right? So when in the future, our home galaxy, the Milky Way, will collide with the Andromeda galaxy, which is traveling towards us, which will happen in a billion or two billion years, or somewhere in between, the actual process will be a process of the merger of two galaxies. There will be no actual collision, bang, 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 of the two galaxies and the stars that they contain. They'll simply pass through each other, and there'll be a gravitational dance that will take a couple of billion years or maybe longer, and eventually there will be a larger galaxy that will emerge at the end of the process, a larger galaxy. So that's what it is. So uh, I don't know what Olber's paradox is, but the, the assumption that there is an infinite number of stars in the universe is incorrect. There is a finite number of stars. And that's why the night sky is dark. If there were an infinite number of stars, the night sky would be as bright as, as the surface of the sun or even brighter than that. So that is the reason why the night sky is dark because it's almost it's, it's mostly empty space. The stars are few and far between. Not few, but the distances, average distance, distance between stars is of the order of light years. Right? Many light years. The closest star to Earth is about four or so light years away. Yeah, Proxima Centauri. And the distance between our galaxy, the Milky Way, and the closest, the nearest galaxy, Andromeda, is about 1.5 million light years. These are enormous distances. So that's why the night sky is dark. The number of stars is not infinite, it's finite. All right. Ori Jun says, don't you think that theoretical physicists have gone too much creative and radical in the past few decades? For instance, we are talking about multiverses, parallel universes, higher dimensions, 
holographic principle, etc. They don't have any experimental grounds. Things like the Murtiverse are brought up in discussions as if it's completely natural and self-evident. Do you think physicists need to be more conservative? I would very much like to hear your views on this. Uh, I think this might be due to the discovery of QM, quantum mechanics and general relativity in the 20th century. Okay, P.S. I'm not sure what that is, but yeah. Have, have physicists gone overboard? I think they have to a large extent. When we talk about the string theory la landscape, 10 raised to 500 different universes, possible universes, etc. What's the evidence for this? We are going beyond science when we are talking about these things. Science, a, there is something about science that's very clear. Any scientific theory needs to be A, testable and B, falsifiable. It has to be falsifiable. When we talk about multiverse, when we talk about parallel universes, there is no way we are ever going to be able to test it. Right? We can only observe what exists in the observable universe. The observable universe is most likely a small subset of the actual universe that we inhabit. And beyond the universe, if there is something beyond, there is no way of knowing what's out there. And there's absolutely no way of testing it or observing it. We can only observe a small subset of the actual universe. So when we talk about a multiverse that is non-testable, that is non-falsifiable, and that means that it's not science. Yeah, mathematically you could come up with uh, scenarios in which there could be mul multiple universes. Yeah, sure. But it is not testable, it is not falsifiable, and that's why it is something that is not quite science. It is either philosophy or ideology. Yeah. And yet you have all of this becoming mainstreamed. Physicists talk about this, parallel universes and things like that. Yeah, higher, higher dimensions, which, which we have never been able to observe. Well, higher dimensions is something that's right here, theoretically. So we could try and find, we could try and devise tests of whether these higher dimensions exist or not. Uh, many of these higher dimensions are supposed to be compactified dimensions. So you can observe them only in the very small quantum domain, essentially. So maybe we could in the future test that sort of theory out. So that is still something that's within the realm of science. But when we talk about parallel universes and, and the multiverse, that is just, ah, that's not science, right? So yes, right now we have lost some of the discipline that, that science needs to have. And that's why we are kind of adrift and we have, we have lost, we have in some way lost touch with reality. In the past 30 years, there has been no new progress in physics. It's like we have we have hit a brick wall and we are going no further. Yeah, There are so many open problems, unsolved problems in physics that we have made no progress in, in the past 30 years. The last big uh, new breakthrough was, was the inflation in 1980, 81, 82, thereabouts. Yeah? After that, there's been nothing new. That any new progress that has actually been tested and, and proven, right? So yeah, the, the, so that's why it looks like we need a change of approach. Right now, there's too much groupthink in physics, in theoretical physics. Physics, theoretical physics, essentially, especially in the West, has been taken over by the string theory mafia. 
they have garnered all the funding for themselves. If you want to do theoretical physics, if you want tenure track in academia, you need to do what everybody else is doing, which is research in string theory, publish dozens of papers over a short period of time, which establish your credentials, but, but which take physics not one inch forward. So that's what's happening. And the system is broken. The system, system is rotten. Academia is has become very problematic. And that's why we are not seeing any new or genuine advances in our understanding of, of the universe. So yes, I don't think physicists need to be conservative. I think physicists need to be wilder in their imagination. But they need to be disciplined. You can be creative, imaginative, and wild while being disciplined. What discipline? All your theories need to be testable and falsifiable. You talk about stuff that's not falsifiable, you need to shut up. Don't go there. It's pointless. It's pointless. I always say don't mix philosophy and science. Don't mix religion and science. Don't mix spirituality and science. These things don't mix. So that is the discipline scientists need to have. And that's kind of broken right now. To a, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that needs to be brought back. And uh, so yeah, that's one of the major problems we are facing right now in physics. Vishal says, what is the Barber paradox? Hmm, the Barber paradox. It's, it's a, it's a logical paradox. Let me try to remember what it is. It says, there's a claim, you make a claim that if you are a barber, you shave the people who are not barbers and who don't shave themselves. Okay. A barber, so this is a claim that is made. Okay. A barber is a person who shaves those people who are not barbers and who don't shave themselves. Two components. People who are not barbers and people who don't shave themselves. The, the combination of these two criteria. So if you are a barber, you're shaving people who are not barbers, first of all. And who also don't shave themselves. So that's what a barber does. But that means that the barber doesn't shave himself because he's a barber. So I am a barber. Let's say I am, a, I am the barber we're talking about. Let's say. So I am a barber. I shave people who are not barbers and people who don't shave themselves. So that means that I don't shave myself. I only shave others because I am a barber. But that means that I fulfill one of these two criteria. Right? We, we are already making the presupposition that I am a barber. So that is what's called a logical paradox. And the solution is very simple. Such a barber doesn't exist. Right? So that is the barber paradox, which seems to be an unresolvable paradox. But this solution is simple, that the assumption itself is incorrect. Such a barber simply cannot exist. Yeah. So that is what the barber paradox is. Sudeshna says, do scientists need to recall and remember every formula or derivation they learned while doing research or study? I always wondered, can a scientist crack the IITG in two minutes or do they also need to scratch their brains thinking and solving tough problems? Because whenever I try to remember all the formula and derivations of class 11 for JE, sometimes I become mad 
but I am more or less very good in math. I don't have such infinite recalling ability of all formulae and derivations. See, scientists don't need to memorize all the equations and all the formulas. You ask me to write down the 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 the, the, the Navier-Stokes equation. I I probably will make some mistake in that, right? Uh, but if you if you ask a fluid dynamics researcher to write down the Navier-Stokes equation, that person will do it immediately. You, the, he or she could do it in the sleep. Yeah. You ask me to write down other equations, the Schrodinger equation, the, the uh, Maxwell equations, I could do it in my sleep. So it depends. There are certain things that you use as tools on a daily basis. Those will be burned deep into your memory. But physics is so vast. It has so many subfields. You ask me about condensed matter physics, I will remember next to nothing right now. <laughs> you ask me about fluid dynamics, yeah. So and so... That's how it is. The thing is this. When you use certain tools, certain equations, certain techniques, certain mathematical things are tools that you use on a daily basis that you don't need to memorize. It will be there. Into your, it will be burned into your brain because of repeated use again and again and again. So when you are an active scientist, when you are an active physicist, you need to remember, you will remember stuff that you use on a daily basis. But other stuff you you can afford to forget, right? Uh, so scientists don't need to recall and remember every formula, every definition, every equation they learnt while studying, while as, a, as, a, as students. But the thing is this, that when you want to become a scientist, you have to go through the JEE. If you want to go into engineering, into the IITs, uh, there is the physics GRE for people who want to go to, go to international uh, institutions and all. In these exams, you have to memorize large, vast quantities of facts, of, of equations, of formulae, uh, of formulae and, all, and so on. And you have to memorize all, all kinds of different techniques of solving problems on the spot within, within a certain time period. There's a time pressure and you have to memorize things. Um, so what you're actually learning is how to pass exams. Even the GRE, to some extent, is, is not really an indicator of how good of a physicist you're going to be in the long run. But it does indicate. So if you do well in the IIT JE or in the physics GRE or whatever other GRE, it indicates that you are a person who is capable of a sustained period of focused, dedicated hard work, which is a sign of conscientiousness, which is one of the qualities that a good scientist must have. <laughs> right. So that's how it is. The Indian academic system is broken. You have to memorize stuff and pass exams and you don't really learn anything. But in the case of these high stakes exams like the IIT JE, the physics GRE and other GREs, etc., there is an element of some of that actually matters. So that's how it is. That's just how it is. That's the way the system is built. It actually proves that you are capable and you are willing of, of being disciplined you're capable of being disciplined. You're capable of putting in a sustained period of really intense and hard work of memorizing all these things and solving lots of problems, which is a good indicator of long-term success in life. So that's how it is. It is something you have to do. So you got to do it. Manmat Tiwari says, my sister is in class 7th. Her physics teacher recently in a unit test deducted three marks for writing units in the form of this with the with the 
carat cm squared instead of square cm. Three marks for this. It makes me wonder that whether we are able to reform the system, education system, how will we reform the teacher's mentality? Um, you're right. I have come across such, such teachers. I remember when I was in what standard? Seventh or something. I had to draw something on... You had to pass exams. You had to draw diagrams. It was a diagram of some kind of apparatus in physics that had to do something with sunlight. And in the textbook, it was it was drawn in a certain fashion. I did not memorize the thing. I understood it conceptually. And I drew it, I drew it in a different configuration and different orientation, but which made perfect physical sense. And I lost five marks because my teacher said, no, that's not how it is in the textbook. Most teachers... Well, you know, I, I don't want to be rude. I would say that most teachers are idiots, which is true. Uh, most of them are well-meaning. This is the way they studied stuff. That is what makes sense to them. And that's why they think that if you don't replicate things exactly the way they're in textbooks, then you're doing something wrong. When you don't replicate what's in the textbook, but you give the right answer, it means that you are, you are actually capable of thinking. But this education system emphasizes obedience and memorization, not actual critical thinking. And that's the main problem in the education system today. So if we are to reform the education system, we will have to reform the teachers as well. And beyond a certain age, after a certain age, let's say 35, 40, people simply are not, most people are not capable of changing. So yeah, we will have to bring in new teachers. The best teachers are, will be the ones who are in the 20s, who are capable of changing, who are capable of learning. We need to, when the reforms are done eventually, we will have to, to retire all most of the existing teachers. That's, there's no way around it unless they are willing to change and bring in fresh minds and fresh blood. So yes, that is something that will have to be done. With the current crop of teachers, we will not see changes. They, they, their minds are still the same. The mentality and attitudes are still the same and that's going to be problematic. So when reforms are done, we will need younger people to come in people who are receptive to change. So that's what needs to happen eventually. Saurav says, as a scientist yourself, do you view the Indian academia? How do you view the Indian academia <laughs> in its present state? I've witnessed an obsession, obsession with H-index scores amongst our academicians. There's a stiff obsession with grades, number of papers published, publications in reputed journals, etc., on the other hand, our institutions' research outputs are still meager and, me and namesake. Have the elite Indian institutions only become high-salaried workforce providers, or is there still a hope for quality research coming out? So I've gone into detail uh, about these things in episode 30, 31, thereabouts. Yeah, ask Abhijit a long time ago. I mean, about a year or so ago, in which I've spoken about this in detail. But let me address your question. How do I see Indian academia? Indian academia is the epitome of mediocrity. That's what it is. Forget about what you're saying. In most colleges and universities, there is no emphasis on research at all. Nowadays, I think the UGC, this obsolete thing, institution, organization, has mandated that there needs to be a certain amount of research output. So you have this third-rate research journals that have cropped up like mushrooms everywhere in which you can essentially get some research paper published for a fee. So that's the new scam that's going on in Indian academia. All these so-called research journals that have cropped up, you know. 
it's it's a it's a farce the indian academic system is a farce and even in the top level institutions the you know the top 10% or whatever they do publish it's publish or perish but what's the quality what's the output are they doing any real research no they're not i would say about 2% or 3% of the academicians in india would be like world class 97 98% would be would be mediocre people who have no interest in research who have no interest in progress they're just in it for the salary and for the job security that's how it is um yeah so so it's 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 a morass of mediocrity i i know it very well i've spent most of my life in the academic system i know it intimately i've gone through the grind it's terrible it needs to be changed wholesale and when the changes happen when the reforms happen the current lot of academicians needs to be uh, retired with with whatever pension they would acquire otherwise and, and let them go and we need fresh blood into the system when whenever the government decides to reform the system uh, so yeah that that's what it is an amazing indian citizen says that you have said that in order to get become good at physics mathematics chemistry etc we need to solve lots of problems yes i have said that but what to do when you are unable to solve a problem do you directly jump to the solution or do you try solving it again think about it this way let's say you're a sports person yeah let's say let's say you're playing cricket cricket and you need to take 10 wickets to win the match you let's say you're a bowler fast bowler and you're in a team with five other guys or girls whatever yeah you need to take 10 wickets to win the match and consistently you are able to only get five or six wickets and you keep losing what do you do so you know how to bowl but you don't quite have the skills of how to get certain people out so you need to acquire those skills you need to look at what you're doing wrong whether you're doing something wrong mentally you whether you're doing something wrong biomechanically whether you have the wrong strategy so when you are unable to solve a problem you have to step back and analyze where you are going wrong what skill do you lack problem solving is a bunch of skills it's a it's a bunch of it's a toolkit that you have mathematical toolkit in physics to solve problems right so maybe you're deficient in one of the mathematical uh, aspects maybe you're not good at calculus maybe you're not good at differential equations maybe there are certain classes of differential equations you can't solve maybe you're bad at uh, linear algebra maybe you don't you know you don't quite know how to use matrices whatever right figure out where you're going wrong and then work on that R- address that deficiency that's simply how it works you can jump to the solution but that will teach you nothing the best way of learning something is failing repeatedly then stepping back and looking at why am i failing and then once you identify the reason why you're not able to solve the problem you 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 identify that and then you work on that skill and then you'll be able to solve it and of course it helps to eventually go and look at the solution and see how did they go about solving the problem and so on right so it's a, you have to be patient but you have to be proactive you have to move fast you have to identify your deficiencies and weaknesses and work on them right so that sort of conscious practice if you do you'll be able to progress Abhijit Verma says do you like the TV series the big bang theory there used to be another comedy series called the third rock from the sun 
how did you find the humor in that among the dramas how do you rate star trek and which other series do you recommend for scientists with a thinking and funny bone um i used to like star trek the initial original one with william shatner as captain kirk that was nice i used to like that i saw it when i was i don't know teenager or something uh i liked that the first the first run with th- with those characters uh the big bang theory was funny uh, people actually think physicists are like that like, like the guy sheldon cooper right i think the first season was funny the first couple of seasons were quite funny then it got a kind of stale which was unfortunate uh third rock from the sun if i remember remember watching a few episodes when i was when i was a kid i think that was quite funny yeah yeah so uh so i i rate the original star trek series quite highly there was something called star trek the next generation from the 90s i believe that was also quite good uh and that took a couple of seasons to get into its stride but it was quite good afterwards uh yeah so and what series do i recommend for scientists with a funny with a thinking and funny bone um i i am not able to think of any interesting uh, science fiction or such uh series right now i i quite like the movie interstellar it it was reasonably well grounded in physics and the story was also quite good and among tv series i can't think of any science fiction series right now but but how about i i think about it and i get back to you the next time yeah right okay so I, that brings us to the end of today's questions let's take a look if you have some questions ask me now on the live chat and maybe i'll take a few questions right now so go ahead and ask me questions black mirror black mirror is an interesting one i had seen maybe one or two episodes of that that was interesting yes i don't have i don't quite have the time to watch tv series and all that but yeah black mirror was interesting i had seen a couple of episodes of that uh is homeopathy a pseudo science what are its origins i believe homeopathy originates in 18th or 19th century germany i think and it is very definitely pseudo science um uh, you know there is this term called a homeopathic dose a homeopathic dose of anything is an ineffective dose a very very incredibly dilute dose yeah so homeopathy is i don't remember exactly what the tenets and the principles of homeopathy are but what i do know is that the dosages of whatever active substances are used are so incredibly low that they are they are never going to work and there is this something called there is this concept i believe of water retaining memory of of stuff of of water retaining memory of what substance you put in it and then the water itself is going to work for you or something like that and these concepts or these ideas have no basis in actual science right so overall what i can say is that homeopathy is indeed pseudo science in india most people club homeopathy with ayurveda which is incorrect ayurveda is actually something that has active ingredients herbal ingredients which which have not been studied well but whatever is studied seems to work for instance brahmi it is now used in in in, in nootropic combinations brahmi is is a, is a plant it's a herb that enhances cognitive function and that seems to be proven 
right? And there are lots of other herbs, Arjuna, for instance, and so on. Yeah, in 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 uh, Ayurveda, that scientists thus far have re- kind of refused to study in detail, but they have been tested over thousands of years. So Ayurveda is not pseudoscience, but homeopathy certainly is, right? Okay, do we have anything else? Uh, if the universe is expanding, is there? can there be a chance of forming a new galaxy every day, every week, every month, every year, every second? Um, a galaxy formation, I think it's something that takes a much longer time than the process of forming stars. Uh, when did the first galaxies form? Form uh, The James Webb Telescope, which is currently in operation, recently uh, gave us an image of the oldest known galaxy, which dates back to about, about roughly 250 million years after the Big Bang. So it's clear that galaxies formed very quickly after the, big, after the initial Big Bang expansion. 230, 250 million years after the, after the Big Bang. So galaxies seem to have formed in the earlier stages, phases of the universe, when the universe was much smaller and when stars were, were they, they were close, close together. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if we, have, if we see any galaxies actively forming right now. We do see stars actively forming. There are certain regions, stellar nurseries, in various regions of space within our own galaxy in other places as well where stars stars you can see them actively forming you can see protostellar disks you can see planets forming and all but i as far as i know we don't see any galaxies forming from clusters of stars and all that yeah so it looks like the chance of forming new galaxies is something that has not been calculated the rate of formation of galaxies we don't see any active actively forming galaxies right now It's an interesting question that you've asked. And I don't quite have the answer to it. As far as I know, we don't have any number for how many, for for the rate of the formation of galaxies. We know at what rate stars form, but not galaxies. And as far as I know, there is no actively forming galaxy that we are aware of right now. Interesting question. Okay, let's take some other questions. If we can. Are multilingual people more intelligent? And how many languages can I speak? Uh, it is believed that multilingual people are, they, they perform better on intelligence tests and cognitive tests and the brain develops differently. Yeah. So if you are multilingual, if you make the effort of learning more than one or two languages, it, it kind of helps you cognitively. And maybe it, it contributes to a higher IQ, IQ or, or a higher intelligence overall. Yeah. That's possible. How many languages can I speak? Four at least. And there are certain languages that I can speak, you know, I can I can throw out a few phrases, phrases of some, certain, some languages here and there. It's all based on language families. So if, if you, so if you know one language, you can kind of understand other languages that are closely related to that. If you can speak Hindi, well, most languages in Northern and Western India will make sense to you. If you can speak any of the Western European languages, most of the languages in that region could be somewhat intelligible to you and so on. So I can speak four languages properly and uh, 
other languages here and there, I can throw out a few words or phrases. Yeah. All right. Um, Newton or Einstein, both, both were, both made uh, significant contributions in their own right. Yeah. Okay, please don't ask me questions about history today, my dear friends. Today is about science. Um, let us see. Do we have anything else? Okay, Louis says, if you can see the past of stars when we observe, observe the night sky, firstly, can we theoretically at least see our own remote past of the sun and of our planet? Well, it depends on where we are. So if we are sitting here and we are observing the Andromeda galaxy, we are seeing light that began its journey from there 1.5 million years before today. So we are observing the past of the Andromeda galaxy. If we are looking at the sun, we are seeing light that emerged from the sun 8 minutes ago. The distance between the earth and the sun is 8 light minutes. It takes light 8 minutes to travel from the sun to the earth. So we are seeing the past of the sun itself. So the question is, can we theoretically see our own remote past? Theoretically, if you were to teleport yourself to the Andromeda galaxy and you were to observe the earth from there, you would be observing something that happened 1.5 mil million years in the earth's past. So, so maybe you could see the ancestors of humanity if you could somehow teleport yourself there. And we don't have any means of doing that. But theoretically, if you were there, then yes. So theoretically, if I could make a spaceship or, 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 or a wormhole that would instantaneously take me there to some place in the Andromeda galaxy, and then if I would observe the Earth, I would be seeing what happened on the Earth 1.5 million years before today. The early humans, you know, that had just split off from our chimpanzee cousins and so on. So theoretically, it is possible, but practically, unfortunately, we don't have the technology or the means of making that happen. So it depends on where you are located. So in that, in that manner, you could possibly see our remote past of our planet and our solar system. Okay, my friends, that's the last question for today. We are done for today. Two hours crossed. Thank you very much. Always great fun talking to you all. And I will see you in tomorrow's live stream, which will be about other topics. All right. Thank you very much. Take care. Stay healthy. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye.